Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is the update episode where I give an update on where we are in season one at this point in time, what episodes are coming up, as well as fit in some extra stuff that doesn't really fit in. It doesn't really work within the context of the normal episode. So I will do that and I will talk about where we are in this series on blockchain. And then I will talk a little bit about what's going on in Syria, because that directly relates to things that I talked about in an episode in the series prior to the previous series before this one. So two series ago, we did one on agorism and talked about this specific group of people in this region in Syria. So I'll talk about that. And then I also heard a little bit about um, Epstein again related to something else that I talked about in an episode on corruption and conspiracy in that series. At the end of that, there's a little bit about the Bohemian Grove and some of the stuff going on there. And I heard a tie that people were talking about how some of that stuff related to Epstein. So I'll bring that in at the very end. So to begin with, where we are in the podcast right now, we're on the series on blockchain, which roughly what I'm trying to do is wrap up this season by looking at the future and what alternatives are going on. So I did a whole series on that type of thing related to government that was prior to this. And then this one, which is supposed to be our money section, is related to blockchain. And we're in the middle of that. And then the next one will be education. So right now with the blockchain one, I talked about what blockchain is in the first episode and then talked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And the next few episodes will get into a little more detailed stuff related to blockchain. So the next episode directly after this one will be one on basically other use cases of blockchain technology aside from currencies, cryptocurrencies. So I'll talk about Ethereum, for example, and other platforms and how blockchain is being used for things like voting and smart contracts and zero-knowledge proofs and just all different kinds of things. And we'll talk about that and basically all the other use cases for blockchain aside from cryptocurrencies. And then the following episode is our themes episode. And so I'll wrap up the themes of blockchain by talking about some of the ideologies and political leanings that blockchain really focuses on and what is behind the blockchain movement, at least in general, because every group has different ideas. But there are some common ideologies just with what blockchain technology is. And so I'll talk about that and then talk about some of the reactions to this new technology and these new shifts, reactions by mainly by government as well as by corporations and ways that these two institutions have promoted blockchain and used it and incorporated it, and then other ways where they have shunned it and tried to stifle it out, and then other ways where they have tried to basically take it over. So I'll talk about those types of things and then get into some of the hindrances and stumbling blocks for blockchain and the future related to us as individuals, as well as these institutions and some of the hurdles that blockchain has to overcome if it is going to gain adoption and really go mainstream. 
So that'll be the themes episode. Then the following episode will be the case studies episode. And for that one, I'm going to highlight a few specific cryptocurrencies and blockchain projects in general. And so uh, as far as I know right now, I haven't actually written out the outline for that episode yet. I will be doing that in the next few days. But in my head right now, at least, I'll probably talk about Cardano and Pivx. Those are two very interesting projects that are really cool. And I might add in a third, and I have not decided on that quite yet. So if you hear this and you're listening to this episode sometime within a few days of it releasing, then feel free to email me if you have any specific blockchain projects you want talked about. I actually did have a communication with somebody who was interested in Nano, and that's one of the projects, and I'll actually be mentioning that in one of the upcoming episodes before the case study. But if you have others that you are really into, then send them my way, and if they fit in well, I might try to incorporate them as well. So feel free to do so. So that'll wrap up our series on blockchain. Then I'll do another um, update episode after those next three, and I will introduce the next series on education. So that wraps up the update on where we are outline-wise for season one of the podcast. Now I want to get into Syria and what's going on there. So if you don't remember or haven't listened to the series on agorism, basically what I talked about was this area known as Rojava, or the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, otherwise known as Rojava. And this is an area that basically declared themselves autonomous. They declared themselves not under the rule of Syria or Turkey or any of the states around them, and they decided to organize their society alone apart from these government institutions, and they did so without an official government. They did this under the political structure of democratic confederalism, and basically what this is is that you have a very democratic society that votes on a very local level. So they have councils that meet on basically a street level where all the people that live in your street or your neighborhood meet up and make decisions related to things that directly affect them. And then there's a group that meets up that's on a wider district of the city level, and they meet and talk about things that um, are pertinent to that area. And then there's a city level council, and they meet up and on and on. And so basically, most of the decisions get made at the most local section possible. And so decisions are made from a bottom-up philosophy instead of a top-down like what most states have nowadays. And that's how they do. They're very focused on democracy, obviously. They're very focused on civil rights and gender equality and freedom of religion and things of this nature. So there are rules about having a certain percentage of women included in these types of roles and heading councils. There's a whole council specifically ran by women that have the right to veto decisions by other councils, and they have a completely female branch of their military unit, their militia. And so they're very inclusive. They include many religions. So you'll typically hear them referred to as the Kurds. That's how they've been referred to in the news lately. But really, the Kurds are just one ethnic group that 
do make up this area and these people, but there are definitely also a lot of Arabs and a lot of Assyrians, and there are also some Turkmen, Armenians, and Circassians that also make up the people of this region and this autonomous zone. So it's not just the Kurds, even though that's generally how they're referred to. And so that should give you some rough background. I did a whole episode where I went over how this works and what their society looks like and this governance structure. And it's very interesting, at least to me. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But for those of you who have, I'll assume that most of you have, I will continue on. So basically what's happened is the United States was allied with these people, and I will refer to them as the Kurds from here on out, but you know that it's not just Kurds. But I will refer to them as that just to stay consistent with what you're probably hearing in the news. So basically, the United States was using the Kurds as our de facto army to fight ISIS in the region, and they were doing so and doing so very effectively. And we were giving them training and arms and, you know, how the U.S. does. They do this all over the world. Usually they pick more unsavory characters to rally behind and train, but this time they actually picked up halfway decent ones, so that's kind of cool. But the problem is that now that we have declared ISIS as defeated, and basically we're kind of done in that area for now, as well as there are some issues with having an area secede from its government and declare themselves autonomous. The United States does not have a very kind history towards those types of movements, so there are some conflicts there as well. Well, what happened was that Turkey wanted to come in and take over a basically a strip of land in between Turkey and this autonomous zone. And Turkey's idea was that they were going to come in basically a few miles across the rough border between Turkey and this autonomous zone, take it over, and then flood that region, send a bunch of Syrian refugees there that are very against what the Kurds and other citizens are trying to do in their new society. They are not very fond, um, these Syrian refugees at least, are not very fond of things like civil rights and gender equality and things like this. These are more traditional Arabs and such. And so Turkey's thought was that, hey, we'll take over this buffer zone, we'll flood it with a bunch of people that hate the Kurds as much as we do, and then we'll just let them fight it out. And that'll keep the Kurds at bay. That'll create a buffer zone between them and us, and it'll kind of teach them a lesson. And so that's kind of what Turkey wanted to do. But the problem was that the U.S. had troops there, and they, the Kurds are the Americans' allies. And so if Turkey attacks and maybe a U.S. soldier gets killed, that's not going to go over so well. So basically, the leader of Turkey called Donald Trump and said, hey, I want to come in and take over this area. Uh, Would that be cool with you? And Trump was like, hey, yeah, yeah, just let me pull our troops out. We'll just back them up a little bit and have at it. And so that's basically what happened. So the United States pulled their troops back. And sure enough, Turkey started to invade. And basically what happened is that the Kurds were forced to make a deal with the Syrian government. And so they got some help from Syrian forces, um, as well as the Russians, who are allied with Syria. And they were able to basically create a scenario where Turkey halted their progress. And we've got a kind of a stalemate going on right now where Turkey backed off and now they're they're not progressing any further. There have been many reports of bad things that have happened and all kinds of stuff going on, but that's basically where we are now and more than likely that's kind of where it's going to be. Some of the interesting things here are that 
Although this is a big story in the news as of the time I'm recording this, there has been zero mention that I have seen at least of the governance system that the Kurds are using or of the civil rights that are going on there in the middle of the Middle East, which is one of the most oppressive regions, period, when it comes to civil rights. And you have this one bastion of light in the middle there that eh, we don't even mention that in all of Western media, which seems kind of strange, especially since they're very pro-democracy. They're very pro gender rights, all these things that are being heralded all across the Western world, they have it there and they're implementing it and forcing it and doing well. And we don't even mention it. We just call them the Kurds generally and then just move on. So that's kind of interesting. Another thing that was interesting is that the U.S., um, since the U.S. didn't want Assad in power in Syria, period, they we kind of kept the Kurds from making any deals with Syria or Assad, and we kind of shut them down there and said, basically, you can't do that if you're going to be allied with us. And so the Kurds agreed with that, and they've been taking U.S. arms and training and that kind of stuff, but haven't been able to make any formal deals with Syria at all. Syria's not very fond of them, period, because they broke away. But still, basically, we cut off any chance of them making any kind of deal or peace treaty And then the U.S. has also been brokering deals with Turkey, and that's been interesting because the the Kurds have actually dismantled some of their defenses as basically a sign of good faith in their dealings with Turkey and working out some sort of peace deal. And then kind of out of the blue, the U.S. is like, well, never mind, we're going to pull out of here. Turkey's invading. Yep, peace out. And yeah, so that didn't go over so well. Not, Not such a cool thing. Um, basically the U.S. did what they usually do. They made this group of people dependent on them and then used that as leverage against them. We've done this in uh, all over the place, in Libya, other times in Syria and Afghanistan, Iraq. We've done it all over the place, especially in the Middle East recently, and it's just the same old story. At least this time, we did not partner with a bunch of terrorists that then try to take over the entire region. So that's good. That's a plus on the U.S.'s side. So that's cool. Um, But basically, in the end, what has happened? Well, now the Kurds are allied with Syria and thus Russia as well, which are actually the enemies, so-called, of the United States. So that didn't turn out so well for the U.S. The Turkey is allied with the U.S. through NATO. So they're both members of NATO, which is actually very interesting as well, because according to Article 5 in the NATO rules, Turkey or the U.S. could have invoked this article and made the other country basically ally and fight with them, which is very interesting, because if the U.S. invoked Article 5, that would have forced Turkey to ally with the U.S., their NATO partner, against Turkey. That that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense there. Well, what if Turkey would have invoked Article 5? Well, then the U.S. would have been forced to ally with Turkey in the battle and fight with Turkey and back them up, but it would have been against their own troops and their allies. That, that also does not make a whole lot of sense. So there's a bit of conflict of interest here, but in the end, Turkey and the U.S. are still on good terms. They're still both members of NATO, so that worked out reasonably well for both of them. Um, As far as Turkey is concerned, they did get a bit of a buffer zone. So as long as that stays, hey, they won as well. Syria, 
Well, Syria actually finally made a deal with these Kurds, and the Kurds are no longer going to be allowed to have their autonomous state. Um, They're not going to be allowed to do their own thing. They'll probably be given some amount of freedom and autonomy to an extent, but definitely under the heavy guidance of the Syrian government, more than likely. We don't know yet. This has not happened. I am just projecting basically what uh, seems fairly obvious according to what's happened so far. So... How about the Kurds? How did they fare? Well, not so well. They basically, they they were able to live. So that was good. In the past, there have been many times where the Kurds have been nearly wiped out and there have been genocides against the Kurds in the past. Basically, everyone around them in that area hates them. So the fact that they actually didn't get wiped off and have to flee as refugees, that's a good thing. So they won in that way. But um, they've basically had to give up a lot of their autonomous status, and now they likely will be wrapped up into Syria again and not be their own independent region. And so we'll see how that works out. I kind of alluded to this earlier, talking about the U.S. and it not being so fond of secession movements. And so that is one thing where all of the states in the area and around the world have won in this regard, because you had an area of people, a large area with a lot of people, millions of people that just declared themselves autonomous, started ruling themselves, and they didn't even just create their own nation state. They didn't want a nation state. They just wanted to rule themselves and be free from other nation states, and they did it and did it successfully for many years. And it worked, and they were doing very well. There's very strong civil rights and all the things I've mentioned before. And so that's a threat to any nation state around the world because. If that is able to happen, especially in somewhere like the Middle East, then it's definitely able to happen somewhere like America or Canada or Spain or many of these other areas that actually have had similar movements in the past. And there is an undercurrent there as well. And so we'll see that that definitely could have sparked a lot of things, but it didn't really get any media coverage. It's still not getting media coverage, even though it's all over the media. Kind of weird. But uh, the fact that it no longer exists as an autonomous region probably stifled that. And so the nation states of the world basically have uh, won a plus one on that secession movement. And so they have a little more stability and power there. So plus one for the nation states, minus one for autonomous free regions. So Moving on, the other thing I wanted to mention was Epstein. So I was listening to an episode of Freeman Beyond the Wall, which is another very good podcast I would recommend. He does interviews usually with people more on the anti-government scene and gets into lots of different things. Well, he had someone on there that also was part of another podcast that focuses on conspiracies. And so he talked about Epstein. They got into Epstein and made a connection that relates to something else that I've talked about on this podcast. I have mentioned Epstein, and I also mentioned John DeCamp. So if you don't remember, John DeCamp was a man that I talked about and actually played a clip of an interview with in the conspiracy series I did on corruption and conspiracy. The very last one was the conclusion episode where I played a clip. It was actually a very disturbing clip, so you may have skipped that one. I don't know. It depends on if you're interested in hearing something very disturbing and dark. But either way, that's who this man was. That same man that I played the interview of that talked about basically a prostitution ring and underage things that were going on. And it was at Bohemian Grove. And that was kind of where the tie-in came from, because I talked about Bohemian Grove in the main series on corruption and conspiracy. Well, 
that's who John DeCamp is. So I'll get back to him and now you know roughly who he is in case you forgot. So going back to Epstein, as far as just some updates in general, since I hadn't mentioned him in a while, basically his girlfriend, accomplice, handler, whatever you want to call her, um, she's pretty much disappeared and no one really knows where she is. She did post a picture at one point in time and it leaked out of her holding a book that said something about the CIA on it, which is kind of interesting since there are connections between Epstein and the CIA. And one of the people that was investigating Epstein last time he got busted was told to leave him alone because he's part of intelligence. And, you know, more than likely that's CIA. Some people say that the whole Epstein deal was a CIA honeypot operation where they would basically get material to blackmail high-profile politicians and executives and that kind of stuff. So who knows? There's a lot of connections there. So that's kind of interesting that she leaked this photo of her holding a book that referenced the CIA. But anyway, she kind of disappeared, which is, you know, that's kind of strange. You would think that uh, being the accomplice to this man that's part of the probably biggest conspiracy that's come out in past decade or so, um, you'd think that someone would keep tabs on her and she might have some connections and have to maybe appear in court for some of this stuff. But it does not appear that anyone kept track of her very well and she was basically able to hide out and now she is gone. So that's interesting. Um, the other thing is that even though we have had all these leaks about all the people involved and there have been there are pictures recovered and videos recovered there have been diaries there have been all kinds of stuff lawsuits and there are connections directly with the clintons with the saudi royal family with the british royal family with corporate executives i've seen stuff related to bill gates and many other people that you would probably recognize their names and yet I have heard basically nothing about that. It doesn't seem like any of that is actually getting investigated at all. Seems like basically, oh, well, Epstein killed himself, and so let's just forget about it, case closed. And so even if they do investigate something, it seems like they're focused just on Epstein and his involvement, and that's it, not on any of these other people that are directly connected and that were actually using this underage prostitution service. So that's not very cool, but... Again, plus one for the establishment, minus one for anybody that actually wants justice and that sort of thing. So where the connection comes in is that there was another child prostitution ring that got busted a while ago. This was back in the 80s, and this was ran by a man named Larry King. He ran a small local bank in Omaha, Nebraska, but uh, somehow he was also a multimillionaire and had many very high political connections. He would show up at the Republican Party soirees that would be going on and fundraisers and all this stuff, and he'd you know, be partnered up with some of the top Republican candidates and very high up political people. And so it's kind of strange that he was just a man that ran this small local bank, but he had all this money and all these connections. Well, then he later got busted for having an underage prostitution deal. And where this connects with what I have talked about in previous episodes is that one of the kids, and I don't know if he was quite a kid, I think he was over 18 at the point in time when this took place and it all got busted, but one of those people hired John DeCamp, who I've mentioned previously, and was John DeCamp was his lawyer for some related charges when this ring did get busted. And with that, John DeCamp investigated and looked into all this stuff and basically what happened is that they found out that there was this ring and people got busted. King actually got busted for 
uh, what was it? Laundering money, I believe. And one other thing is financially related. It, he actually didn't get busted for anything related to prostitution. And a few years down the road, the case was appealed. And they actually ended up declaring that there really wasn't an underage prostitution ring, that it was all a big hoax and it was all made up and nothing to see here. Let's move on. And uh, similarly to Epstein, nothing ever became of it and none of the connections ever got investigated. And that was that. Well, one of the interesting things that was getting brought up in the podcast episode on Free Man Beyond the Wall that I'm referring to is that all this happened around 1988. 1988 is when the allegations began about the Larry King prostitution ring and all that stuff, and he was actually convicted of embezzlement in 1990. And again, the prostitution ring was declared a hoax shortly after that. So as far as the time frame goes, if you look at Epstein, and I actually went back and looked at his time frame, they just made a rough reference to this, and I went back and did a little more research, but Epstein founded the J. Epstein and Company company, and uh, that started in 1988, roughly the same time. He then incorporated in the Virgin Islands and changed the name a few years later to Financial Trust Company. And so that was in 88 and just after. You also have the New York mansion that was raided that Epstein lived in. And when it was raided, they found all this evidence. That's where the photos and videos came from and this kind of stuff. And that's when they ended up arresting him was after raiding that mansion. Well, that mansion was purchased in 1989, pretty much the exact same time frame as all this other stuff going on. And Epstein was a millionaire or possibly more, depending on what time frame you look at when his net worth was being evaluated. It keeps going down and down the further we come along in the time frame here. But Epstein was definitely reported to be a millionaire since the early 90s, which again is pretty much the exact same time frame we're talking about here. And also all of the or many of the powerful connections that Epstein had were founded in that time frame. When you look at the Saudi royal family and his connection with Wexler, the corporate executive, and many of his other big major connections that he has, most of those were founded also in the early 90s. So all of a sudden, Epstein started a company, got all this money, made all these powerful connections all at once at the exact same time as this other prostitution ring basically got busted and broken up so the time frame there is just a little suspicious. If one underage prostitution ring gets busted up one year and pretty much the same year you have another man that ends up get, getting busted for doing pretty much the exact same thing, all of a sudden comes into a bunch of money and a bunch of political connections and a bunch of power right at the same time, it almost looks like a bit of transfer of ownership there. Um, and I, I thought that was pretty interesting. I, I don't know if that's true or not, and no one really does, at least no one that is out in the open. But it's an interesting connection there that right at the same time as Larry King's um, ring got busted and broken up and basically dissolved. That was exactly when Epstein basically came into power. And more than likely, according to reports, at least that's when his prostitution activities began and started recruiting girls and all this stuff. And so it almost does seem like you have one ring of underage prostitution to serve the rich elite and powerful all of a sudden just basically transferred ownership to someone else who ran a underage prostitution ring to serve the elites and rich and powerful. 
Yeah, and so I'm curious to see what'll happen from here. Since you're not actually busting any of these elites in Rich and Powerful, they probably still have the same desires and proclivities, and probably will still be served those by somebody. You know, who will that be? What does that look like? Who does the baton get passed on to next? It's kind of interesting. Again, none of this, or, well, the conclusions here are at least just conjecture, but most of these are facts, and when we put those facts together, it paints a picture that seems to play out the way I've described, and I just find that interesting, and I thought since there were connections to both Epstein and to Camp, and I've talked about both of those separately in previous episodes, I thought it would be worth mentioning here. So there's your update on that. And with that, I will just wrap up this episode, because that's all we had. So... Thank you very much for listening. Please see the show notes for all the links and all the resources and all the different things, ways you can contact me. Again, send me an email if you have a blockchain project you're interested in or a cryptocurrency. And if you get that to me soon, I'll see if I can fit that in if I haven't finished recording those episodes yet. And other than that, please do leave a rating or a review if you haven't done so already. And thank you very much for all your support. Thank you for listening. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.